Now will you notice, as we come now to chapter 3, he goes on. And in chapter 3 now, we have here God's comfort in the glorious ministry of Christ. Now he's going to reach the heights here. Oh, how wonderful this is. Now, let's move on. Chapter 3, verse 1. Do we begin again to commend ourselves? Or need we, as some others, epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? Paul says, do I have to have a recommendation from my employer, from God, that I'm his minister? (laughs) Paul says, no, I don't have to have that. I don't bring a letter from him. Why? Ye are our epistle, written in our hearts, known and read of all men, for as much as ye are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in fleshly tables of the heart. This is quite wonderful. I appreciate the fact so many people tell us they like for us to read the letters. Some people object to it. They think I'm wasting time. I'm not. Do you know the proof of this program or any program or of any church is not whether you've got a recommendation from God. He's not giving them out, by the way. The proof of anything is the epistles that are written in the fleshly tablets of the heart. And I read these letters. That's the reason I read some letters that we get that tell of people that have turned to Christ. Our homes are changed. Our lives are being blessed. May I say to you, I know this is the Word of God. You know why? Because there's so many epistles out under listening in. And many of you are my epistle. A wonderful family came up to me down in Houston, Texas, several years ago. And I've always thought if nobody else had ever turned to Christ, thank God for them. But I can multiply that a thousand times. They came and they told us how they began to listen. Took them three months of listening before they ever made a decision for Christ. And the entire family turned to Christ. Spanish family. I type. Fine looking. That man and that woman, both of them could be in the movies if they wanted to. They are handsome. Handsome children. All turned to Christ. Oh, those are some pistols I got down in Texas. I got some pistols practically in every state. I want to say to you, friends, this is the proof. This is it. Paul says, you Corinthians are my pistols. You're my pistols. And they're written in fleshly tablets of the heart. Oh, how wonderful it is to see something like this. Now, I want to move on. I must move on. And... Now he says, and such trust have we through Christ to Godward. Now, that gives me confidence. May I say to you, I know this is the Word of God. Oh, I believe that in seminary. I think that intellectually it can be determined this is the Word of God. But I don't even need that anymore. I've passed that. To me, it's very simple. The proof of the Word of God is what it does today. The proof of the pudding, they say, is in the eating. God put it like this, taste of the Lord, see if he's good. (laughs) That's what he says. That's his challenge to you. The Lord Jesus Christ said that. He says, the Son will make you free if you'll come to him. How wonderful this is. Now, let's read on. Not that we're sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves. Now, friends, if you get the impression 
that there's something in this poor preacher. You are wrong. Oh, how weak he is. And if you haven't sensed that in this epistle of Second Corinthians, the weakness of the apostle Paul. Oh, but my friend, Paul could say, when I'm weak, that's when I'm strong. And today, God's not looking for some big something or somebody. Passed me by a long time ago, and he'd maybe pass you by. God chooses weak things of this world, little things, insignificant things, our sufficiencies of God, friends. Now, will you listen? Oh, this is tremendous. Who also hath made us also able ministers of the New Testament. And I'd like to change that. We are ministers of the New Covenant. And we have here now a contrast between the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, and the New Covenant and the New Testament. And there is a contrast here in several different ways. Who also hath made us ministers of the New Covenant? Now, he says, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. Now, the letter, we're talking, I hope you understand, about the Old Testament. And we're talking specifically about the law. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. Now, what happens? Well, the letter kills. You see, actually, the letter condemns us, friends. That is the thing that the law does. The law condemns us. And the law says that you and I are guilty sinners. And these letters that were written on the stone, they condemn man. And that's the contrast that he's making here, because the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. Now, the Mosaic law never gave life. I've often challenged congregations to have them name somebody who was ever even saved by the law. Did you know that Moses, the lawgiver, could not even be saved by the law? You know why? He was a murderer. <laughs> David broke it all, but he's a man after God's own heart. You can't be saved with keeping the law, friends. The law kills you. It condemns you. And Paul's going to talk about it here. He says, but if the ministration of death, that's the old covenant, that's the law, written and engraven in stones. Now we know what he's talking about. But it was glorious. It's the will of God, but it condemns me. It shows me I'm a sinner. So that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away. That glory that was on Moses' face began to disappear. How shall not the ministration of the Spirit be rather glorious. In other words, if the Old Testament was glorious, what about the New? For if the ministration of condemnation be glory, much more the ministration of righteousness, and that's the righteousness we have in Christ, exceed in glory. For even that which was made glorious had no glory in this respect by reason of the glory that excel it. Now, will you notice verse 11 he says, For if that which is done away was glorious, much more that which remaineth is glorious. He's making a contrast between the law, the giving of the law, and this day of grace in which we live. And even the giving of the law was glorious. Now, what does he have reference to here when he 
speaks of the fact. Here he says, seeing then, verse 12, that we have such hope, we use great plainness of speech. And not as Moses, which put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished. And now, what is he having reference to? There are two things here I'd like to call your attention to. First of all, we need to recognize that there was a first giving and a second giving of the law. Now, when Moses went to the top of the mount, God gave him the tables of stone, and God gave those tables, and he himself wrote the law. Now, that was the law that these people were to live by and actually be saved by or be judged by. Now, while he was up there, the children of Israel broke the first two laws. Thou shalt have no other God before me. And Moses himself had to say, I exceedingly fear and quake. And it was a very strict rigid law. It was eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, burning for burning, cutting for cutting. And it was absolute, intrinsic righteousness and holiness. Whatever a man actually deserved, according to that law, he was to receive it. Now, these people are breaking it. What's going to happen? God says, get down there. When Moses got down, and he could see in a distance what the children of Israel had done. Breaking the first two, he didn't dare bring those tables of stone into the camp. Why? Why, the entire nation of Israel would have been blotted out at that very moment. They would have been judged because the breaking of those laws meant instant death. What did Moses do? He took those laws and smashed them. Then he went into the camp. No use taking those in. It meant the extermination. Now, when he went back to the top, why, we see that something has happened. And the thing that has happened is that God now is tempering the law with mercy and with grace. And what is happening? Well, the thing that is happening is this, that now at the very heart of the Mosaic system, there's to be a tabernacle and there is to be a sacrificial system given. And that will be the basis of the approach of these people to God, which is without shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. But without holiness, no man's going to see God. Well, how in the world are we going to get into his presence? Well, God will have to make a way for us. And God made a way. And therefore, that is the thing that we have reference to here. But when Moses came down, and let me tell you, it was a glorious, wonderful thing now that he's come down with the second commandments, and in it, the law, which was a ministration of condemnation, and it's called also a ministration of righteousness, and it demands righteousness, of man, and man was unable to produce it of himself. And now we find here that there is grace. And this is the thing that Paul later on found, a man under the law who persecuted Jesus Christ. 
And then he said that I might be found in him not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Now, here is a ministration of glory indeed, and that is the glorious gospel. Now, I want you to notice what he's talking about here. The law was glorious. It had made a way of salvation. And we are told here that it's the glorious gospel. And that's a wonderful thing that it's called. And elsewhere, we hear of the blessed God. Well, actually, it means the happy God. And what is it that makes God happy? Well, the thing that makes God happy is that He's a lover of man. He wants to save them. And we are told in Micah 7, 18, He delighteth in mercy, and that judgment is a strange work. And the reason is, He delights in mercy. And He has no pleasure, He says, in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from His way and live. God wants to save. And the thing that makes Him happy, we have a happy God. What a glorious picture that you have here. Now, will you notice this? When Moses came down the second time, there's joy in his heart, and his face shone now that there is a way for the children of Israel through the sacrificial system. Now, let me make this very clear again, that the veil that was put on his face, that Moses put on, it was not because his face was shining so that they couldn't look at him. It was because that glory was beginning to fade away, you see. It was a glorious thing, but it began to fade away. And what happens here? Well, their minds were blinded until this day. There remaineth the same veil untaken away on the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. Now, what he's saying here is that veil that Moses wore is now on the minds of God's ancient people. And it's on there because of the fact that these people actually don't see that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness and that he is the fulfillment of it. And the blindness is there. Now, we're going to find out when we get down a little farther in the next chapter, that the God of this world hath blinded the mind of those that don't believe. And we're going to see why when we get down there. But now let me move on. Paul says here that he had such a hope and that we use great plainness of speech. Now, the gospel had brought to Paul a great hope, a confidence so that we can boldly say that the Lord is my helper and the Lord is my salvation and that someday we're to be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Somebody says, my, you must think you're mighty good. Oh, no, I'm a mighty sinner if you want to know the truth. But the confidence comes through the glorious gospel that has brought a hope now to man. And Paul says, because of that, He uses great plainness of speech. Now, he's going to talk a little in the next chapter about we have this treasure in earthen vessels. And Paul, as he came preaching the gospel, he made it very clear. He said, I didn't come to you with excellency of speech. 
I determined not to know anything among you Corinthians, but just Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I wish today in our seminaries and our Bible schools we could get back to the time when we depended on the Spirit of God and not methods or our cleverness and our ability, and we just depended on the Word of God to do the work of God. Oh, today, all the little clever gimmicks that are being used to get people to put up their hands, to get them to sign a card, to get them to come forward to do something. Oh, my friend, we just only learn to use plainness of speech. Just give it as it is. And that is the thing that is important. Now, we come again to this statement. Moses put a veil on his face. The glory was departing. And their minds were blinded, the veil on them. But even unto this day, when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. When they read the law, they actually think maybe they're able to keep it. And they feel like that maybe they'll be able to merit it. But you're going to find out, friends, that even in the Old Testament, there was not that confidence that you would expect or should be in the hearts and minds of God's people. Why, you find that even David was perplexed. And David raised some questions. And Job was absolutely in utter bewilderment. And Hezekiah turned his face to the wall, and he wept and sobbed, and he didn't understand. But may I say to you, this is a day when the feeblest, weakest saint who trusts Jesus, he has the absolute assurance of his perfect acceptance with God. Now, he moves on. He says, but even unto this day, when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. Now the Lord is that Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. And friends, only the Spirit of God can lift the veil today and help us to see that Christ is the Savior, and He alone. And as a result, my friend, He's the one and the only one and only the Spirit of God can make that real. And Paul is talking to his people in that day, as Simon Peter did. Simon Peter says to him, that is to the Lord Jesus, give all the prophets witness that through his name, whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins. And friends, if you don't see the Lord Jesus Christ in the Old Testament, Believe me, the Spirit of God's not your teacher, because the Spirit of God takes the things of Christ and shows them unto us. Now will you notice, and when the Spirit of God, He brings you into the place of liberty. He doesn't put you under law. He delivers you from law and brings you to Christ. And when He does, will you notice this? But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Now, this is a very wonderful passage of Scripture here, and it's been, I think, abused today a great deal. And as a result, why we find there are those that 
take a position that it's more or less if they will only turn to Christ, then if they will behold him and look to him, then they will be able to witness. Well, I'm not sure that that's the thing that's here. May I say to you, I think that he's talking very candidly about something else that I believe is very important here. And he's been talking now about the gospel is veiled. Now the veil is taken away and we're looking upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And the thing that will keep us even today is sin in our life. But we are to look to him here. And when we look to him, here is what we have. The Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, reflecting. Now, the word here in the Revised Version is reflecting. But very candidly, I think the authorized that we have here is much better. Beholding, as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord. The idea is not that of reflection in order to transform, but rather that of beholding until transformed. And then we can reflect. And I think it should be, We are beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. We are transformed into the same image from glory to glory, even as from the Lord, the Spirit. Now, may I say that I have before me today the amplified version. And Miss Stewart, who did this, she and I, she lived here in Southern California, up here in Sierra Madra, And when she was alive, well, she and I carried on a very, I would say, friendly battle because she would hear me on the radio refer to her amplified translation. And I would question some things. Well, may I say to you, Miss Stewart was a brilliant woman. And I want to be very frank and say I lost most of the battles, those friendly battles. But one or two of them I won. I know two of them I did. And one of them has to do with this verse. And I want to read it to you in the Amplified Version. And it reads, And all of us, as with unveiled face, because we continue to behold in the Word of God, as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord, are constantly being transfigured into His very own image in ever-increasing splendor, and from one degree of glory to another... For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now, may I say to you, I think that is excellent, but I don't like the word transfigured here. Only the Lord Jesus is transfigured. And the Word of God is the mirror that we are to look at. That is true. But as we look at the mirror, the Word of God, you see what is happening here is just simply, is it's not reflection in order to transfigure or transform. And I don't like transfigure. Only the Lord Jesus was transfigured, and I've never seen a saint yet that I thought had been transfigured. But it's that of beholding, just looking at him. That's the reason we need to stay in the Word of God and behold the Lord Jesus. And as you behold him, may I say to you, You're transformed by that. In other words, the Word of God 
not only regenerate you, and we are only regenerated by the Spirit of God using the Word of God. We are born again, not by corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, of the Word of God that liveth and abideth forever. Now the Word of God does something else. And this is where saints... Oh, the reason I'm putting such an emphasis today here, this is so important. I hope it's important to you. I found it's important now to me. And I wish I'd spent more time looking in the mirror, beholding him more. Oh, my friend, in the Word of God, we sin. He's not a superstar. He's not just a man. Oh, my friend, in the Word of God, you see the unveiled Christ. Oh, how wonderful he is. Dr. Ironside tells about an old Scot that lay suffering and actually dying. And the physician had told him he wouldn't last very long. And a friend who uh, apparently was his pastor, he came in to spend a little time with him, and he said to him, he says, they tell me you'll not be with us long. That's a nice thing to say to a man. But he said also, I hope you got a wee glimpse of the Savior's blessed face as you're going through the valley of the shadow. And the dying man looked up, and he regained a little strength, and he says, away with the glimpse, man. It's a full view of his blessed face I've had these 40 years, and I'll not be satisfied with any of your glimpses now. Well, may I say to you how wonderful this is. Oh, to behold him today. Behold a man in full view. Today, I'm sure many of you remember Nathaniel Hawthorne's story about the great stone face. Remember the little lad that lived in a village where there was a mountain and there was a great stone face up there. And the people had a myth going, a legend, that someday someone would be coming to the village who just looked like the great stone face. And he'd do wonderful things for the village and be a means of great blessing. Well, that story, you know, got a hold of that lad. And he spent his whole lifetime Oh, every waking moment that he didn't have something to do just looking at that stone face. Oh, he said, someday someone will come. And years passed, and time went by, and he became not only a young man, but he became an old man. And tottering down the street one day, someone looked up and saw him coming, and he said, he's come, the one who is like the great stone face. Well, this man had beheld the great stone face so long. Now, listen, you want to be Christ-like? All right, take a look at Jesus. Dr. Louis Spirit Schaefer used to, in chapel, when we'd sing that song, take time to be holy, speak off with thy Lord. He'd always stop us, and he'd say, change that first line. Let us sing it. Take time to behold him. You want to be holy? Behold him then. May I say to you, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. Things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. I need this. I hope you sense a need of seeing Jesus Christ on the pages of the Word of God.
and that you and I might grow like it. Now we have here, as we come today to this fourth chapter, another segment of God's comfort. We've had in chapter 1 God's comfort for life's plans. Then in chapter 2, God's comfort in restoring a sinning saint. Then in chapter 3, God's comfort in the glorious ministry of Christ. Wasn't that third chapter wonderful? Well, we're not going to come down from the mount. We're going to stay right up there because now we have God's comfort in the ministry of suffering for Christ. I'm not sure about what we'll have to climb a little higher, and I'm not sure about what we're getting in an atmosphere where I have really difficulty in breathing, but let's go on up. He says, come up higher, and that's what we want to do. Now, verse 1 of chapter 4, I want to read. Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we faint not. Now, this is the ministry here, he says. This is a glorious ministry. The ministry that he's given to us today is a ministry that no man could have worked it out. It'd just be impossible for him to work it out. And I do not know why he let me in on it other than this. Because Paul says, as we've received mercy. And as we said before, that God's rich in mercy. and He didn't exhaust it before he got to me and because he saw I'd need a whole lot of it. And he's been rich in mercy to me. And by mercy, he's permitted me to have this radio program. I can assure you that's the reason for it. And because of that, we faint not. We're rejoicing today. Someone got the impression the other day because I just made the statement that our program was unique, that I was lonely. My friend, I have never enjoyed the ministries I have since I retired. And my wife says to me, if this is retirement, it's for the birds. She said, we've never been so busy in our lives. Oh, thank God, friend. In fact, the matter is, my doctor made me slow down, and this body of mine just won't keep up with me anymore. And I saw it wasn't, and so I've slowed down a little, I can assure you. Now, listen to Paul. He says this ministry is wonderful. Well, what's so wonderful about it? Well, I'll tell you what's wonderful about it is this. I studied religions in seminary, and fact of the matter is, They so fascinated me that in the first few years of my ministry, I almost went in that direction to specialize in that particular field. But I didn't. But I am more or less acquainted with quite a few religions in this world. And if you want to know the difference between Christianity or the gospel of the grace of God, And the religions of the world, it can be expressed in one word. All of them say, do, do, do. And the gospel says, done. D-O-N-E, done. The gospel says, God has done something for me. And I'm to believe it. I'm to trust him. And that's my approach to him. The only way I can come to him, by faith. And without faith, it's impossible to please him. But the religions of this world, oh, they all say do. And I've been rather amused. I've taken the cults of this country. I did this years ago. 
One of them says there are four things you have to do to be saved. I disagree with them on every one of them. They do say faith, but their faith isn't a trust in Christ. It's anything but that. It just means that you believe that Christ died 1,900 years ago as a historical fact. Well, you just well believe George Washington crossed the Delaware or the Potomac. It was the Delaware, wasn't it? May I say to you, that won't save you. But just to believe Jesus died, my friend, Jesus died for our sin, according to the Scripture. Oh, how important that is. It's all important, my friend. So all of the religions of the world, they say, come on, do something, boy. And one of them has seven things you must do. And another one has ten things you must do, the Ten Commandments. May I say to you, they don't recognize they are not doing it, but nevertheless, they have all of that. Now, Paul at one time had been under the law. He knew what it was, but he could say very candidly. He says, I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Others may think they were really under the law. I was under it. And he says, I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. And he hoped that he'd be able to work out his salvation. And then one day he met the Lord Jesus Christ on the Damascus Road, and he came to know him. And when he came to know him, he says that I might be found in him not having mine own righteousness. You see, when Paul stood in the presence of Jesus Christ, he saw that Paul couldn't make it on his own. He'd have to have the righteousness of Christ. Might be found in him not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but the righteousness which is by faith of Jesus Christ. And Paul says, now that was a new day for him. That's a new day for all of us. Now we need mercy. And God has been merciful. The love of God provided a Savior. God loved us. But God in mercy provided a Savior, and now he saves us by his grace. How wonderful he is. Now Paul's not through. He's going to say something else. But have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Now, Paul says that there's something else, not for salvation. No, you're saved by the grace of God. But Paul says that great emphasis should be put on living the gospel. We've renounced, he says, the hidden things of dishonesty. You see, the fact that we've come to Christ and trusted him, it's not just that intellectual ascent that Christ died on the cross. It said, we trust him. And not only that we've trusted him, but we've been regenerated. That he now has saved us, and we ought to be an example of the gospel. In other words, the man who preaches the gospel should be a holy man. And he says here, we've renounced the hidden things of dishonesty. Well, last time, probably you thought I was not very kind to the Amplified Bible. Well, I'm going to turn and read it today, this verse, because the translation here is very good. 
It brings out all the facets of these words that Paul uses. Let me read now verse 2 in the Amplified Bible. You follow along in your Bible there. We have renounced disgraceful ways, secret thoughts, feelings, desires, and underhandedness, methods and arts that men hide through shame. We refuse to deal craftily, that is, to practice trickery and cunning, or to adulterate or handle dishonestly the Word of God. But we state the truth openly, clearly, and candidly, and so we commend ourselves in the sight and presence of God on every man's conscience. My friend, that's a very wonderful verse. Now, that gives meaning here. We are not to walk in hypocrisy. We shouldn't be unreal. Our behavior shouldn't contradict that which we're preaching. May I say it ought to be a conduct that meets the approval of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not perfect but at least we ought to walk in a way that is well-pleasing to him. And we're not perfect. Then he has another word here, the not handling the word of God deceitfully. Someone has translated that huckstering, not huckstering the word of God. May I say to you, this gets right down to you. Mr. Preacher, many of you listen to me. Why do you preach? You're preaching for money? You say you preach for the love of souls, but really is it the love of souls or is it money? I better examine my own heart in this connection. May I say to you, Paul could say, Well, it's me if I preach not the gospel. And therefore, you can preach the gospel and say things that are absolutely true. And then your life, it's speaking another message all the same time. Oh, I want to say to you, I pray about this a great deal in my own life. And I say, oh, God, don't let me preach unless I can have a clear conscience. Unless there is the power of the Spirit of God, I don't want to preach unless there's those two things. You know, it's glorious to preach the gospel, but it's an awful thing to preach it. And actually, down underneath, there is that Lack of sincerity, lack of being committed to it, uh, having a conviction about it. And may I say, I'm not just talking to preachers, because they've already tuned me out, but I'm talking to you, Christian friend. You want to be a witness for Christ? And you are a witness. Actually, what he's speaking of here as being the clergy or the ministry is not the man in the pulpit. It's the man in the pew. We today ought to train people for the work of the ministry, Paul says. That's our business. We ought to help equip you. But I'd like to say to you that it's very important for us to recognize that the Lord Jesus Christ, he died for the sheep, not for the shepherd. He died for the sheep. And it's the sheep that are going to win sheep. The shepherd doesn't produce sheep. Sheep produce sheep, you know. Heard that the other day. That's tremendous. Shepherds can't produce sheep. My business is try to get you to witness. And by the way, are you doing something today to get the Word of God out? That's witnessing. God may have given you a gift to make money, and you're helping somebody get it out. 
You may be a man or woman of prayer, or you may have contact with people nobody else could reach. They wouldn't listen to me. I find that some people, they say, I don't want to listen to that fellow with that. What was it? I read a letter the other day. This party listened to me and thought I had a twang, and they were about ready to turn me off. They laughed at my accent, and then they kept listening. And there's a professor back in the University of Ohio. He said, when I tuned you in, I thought you was a screamer from my section of the country. That is East Tennessee and West Virginia. But he says, I found out you didn't run out of breath. I kept waiting for you to, and you didn't. And that man came to the Lord. Now, I can't reach all of them, though. A lot of them tune me in, and then they tune me out. But you could reach them. God's called you to witness, my friend. This is tremendous. Now, we come to something else that is tremendous here. Will you listen? He says, But if our gospel be hid, it's hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world... And actually, I don't like to call him the God of this world, Satan. Because he's not. I go out into the woods this past fall. Ms. McGee and I had the privilege of driving through eastern Ohio and West Virginia and Pennsylvania and Maryland and around Virginia and cross into Indiana and Illinois and Missouri and Arkansas. Oh, how beautiful it was. And I say to you, that's God's world that we were looking at. Oh, sin is marred, but still God's world. But it should be the God of this age. And Satan, my friends, the God of this age, he's running it. He runs the United Nations. He runs all the amusements. And he's running the whole show today, if you ask me. And he's the God of this age. And what has he done? Well, he has blinded. He says here, He hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. Now, this is a tremendous thing that we have here. Have you ever heard anybody say, Well, you know, I don't understand the gospel. I've heard it all my life, but it doesn't mean anything to me. You know, I've heard people say that again and again. What's happened? The devil has blinded you. The light is shining, but the devil has blinded you. So you can't see. Just like that miner I told about up in West Virginia. He was down in the mine, and they'd had an explosion. And quite a few miners were trapped. And finally, they got food over to them, and then they got a light over to where they were trapped. And they turned on the light, and a young miner there, looking right into the light, says, Why don't they turn on the light? And all of the men looked at him startled. He'd been blinded, you see. Satan's blinded. And a lot of people say, why don't you turn on the light? I don't see the gospel at all. Satan's blinded you, my friend, if that's your condition today. Now, there's others, though, that say this. You know, there are things in the Bible that I cannot believe. Now, I don't know why, but I just can't believe them. I had a letter the other day from a man. He wanted to challenge me that I was giving out a gospel that's not true, and I knew the Bible was not true. Oh, the arrogance. And In fact, I wrote him. I told him I've never read a letter where I've seen such a display of ignorance and arrogance. And this fellow, really my friend, was ignorant, and he was arrogant also. And you know what his problem was? 
his problem was that there were not things in the Bible he couldn't believe. There was sin in his life that the Bible condemned. He didn't want to believe it. And that's the condition of a lot of folk today. The problem is not with the Bible. The problem is with their lives. And my friend, if you want to go on indulging in your sin, then you can go on with your loss. But you can turn to Christ. Don't tell me you can't. You can. You know, the moment a man comes to the place where he sees himself as a sinner, and he said, I'm ready to renounce my sin. I'm ready to receive Christ as my Savior. He'll be saved. And my friend, today the Word of God is a light. And some people with the light shining, they say, I don't see And they like to blame it on the Bible. They say, well, you know, I just don't understand those things. Hard for me to believe that. My friend, instead of approaching it like that, face your sins before God. And there'll be no difficulty about you believing. I want to give you a quotation from Sir Isaac Newton. I don't suppose anyone today would say that he was anti-intellectual or that he was not a man of remarkable ability. Well, one day someone said this to him. I'm quoting, Sir Isaac, I do not understand. You seem to be able to believe the Bible like a little child. I've tried, but I cannot. So many of its statements mean nothing to me. I cannot believe, I cannot understand. Now, this is what Sir Isaac Newton said. Now, will you listen to him? I'm quoting, Sometimes I come into my study, and in my absent-mindedness I attempt to light my candle when the extinguisher is over it, and I fumble about trying to light it and cannot. But when I remove the extinguisher, then I'm able to light the candle. I'm afraid the extinguisher, in your case, is the love of your sins. It is deliberate unbelief that's in you. Turn to God in repentance. Be prepared to let the Spirit of God reveal His truth to you, and it will be His joy to show the glory of the grace of God shining in the face of Jesus Christ. You know, he's not only a great scientist, this man was a great preacher. <laughs> May I say to you, they do not believe. Why? Lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine under them. And it's a glorious gospel, but it's glorious because it reveals the glory of Christ. And that's what men apparently don't want to see. Paul, therefore, can say, we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. My friend, it's only the Lord Jesus that can save you. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, he goes back to the creation. And I don't know when creation took place. A great many folk think, those of us that are fundamentalists, that we believe that God created this universe in 4004 B.C. at 9.32 in the morning. My friend, may I say, that's about as asinine a viewpoint as I know anything about. I do not know any of my fundamental brethren that believe them. Way back yonder in the beginning, 
God created it. And I think in the ages or the past, and if you want billions of years, I say put them in. If you want trillions of years, put them in. If you need squillions of years, put them in, brother. Our God's a God of eternity, and he wasn't sitting around twiddling his thumbs waiting for man to appear on the scene. Man's a Johnny-come-lately, of course, but God's been here a long time. And this universe goes way back. I don't know what happened to it. Something happened to it. And it bears evidence of that. And finally, my friend, God moved in, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And then God said, let there be light. So God commanded the light to shine out of darkness, and it shined in our hearts. What happens is this. The Holy Spirit of God, and the word back there in the Greek in Genesis 1 is that the Spirit of God brooded, and the Spirit of God brings conviction to us. And then he regenerates us, and the light of the glorious gospel shines in our hearts in the face of Jesus Christ. And we're back looking at him again. Someone has said, look saves, but the gaze sanctifies we need to spend a lot of time looking at him. Now we come to something else that is quite wonderful. He says here, But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. Now, here we have before us this tremendous verse, and he's speaking of the fact that We are just an earthen vessel. The picture here is quite a vivid one, by the way, and it's one that I think we need to note very carefully. The word for earthen is ostraka. Today, the archaeologist is digging up many cities, and actually what they've been digging up has been, in many cases, the city dump. That's what happened down in Egypt. And at Oxyrhynchus, they just got the dump of the city, all broken pottery, clay vessels there. And that is the thing. When I was over in Lebanon, I went down to Tyre, and I walked along that excavation, the excavation that went across the place where Alexander the Great filled in between the mainland and the island and made a peninsula there. And you can walk out on that, and they've excavated there. You know, I could have filled my pockets. In fact, I could have filled a bushel basket full of broken pottery that was in there. And they tell you not to take it. I just took a little piece. That was all because I'm sure they could spare it. Man, there was all kinds of broken pottery there. Now, may I say to you, that's what we are. We have this treasure. What treasure? This glorious gospel. We have it in just a little old earthen vessel. That's what we are. Now, what is the picture here? Well, he says here, we don't preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and we're just servants for Jesus' sake. My friend, as long as we get the impression we might be a great preacher, or even want to be a great preacher, or we want to be a great Christian, it's one reason I'm not sure we ought to be having all these testimonies today. It's pretty easy for a man to begin to brag in his testimony. You know, if Jesus Christ is not glorified, no point in it whatsoever. Because, after all, we're just servants, and that's the best can be set of us. And therefore, he's going to say here, we have this excellency of the power of God, and we have it in what? Earthen vessels. 
Now, what is the picture that he's giving us here? Well, very candidly, the picture is a picture that takes us back yonder into the time of Gideon. And you remember that the way Gideon overcame the Midianites, he took only 300 men, and each man had a trumpet, and he had a candle, and he had a pitcher, earthen vessel. And so they put those candles, or the oil lamp, down in the earthen vessel, held it up so that the light went up and it couldn't be seen at a distance. And then when they got among the Midianites, what did they do? They broke those earthen vessels. And it wasn't until the earthen vessel was broken that the light was shining out. My friend, that's the thing that's needed today, that the vessel be broken. (laughs) And the problem today is that we are thinking that We need the preacher that has the nice smile. It's not your smile, my friend. It's your suffering. (laughs) Smile, you're on candid camera. My friend, smile. No, suffer. You're on candid camera. Because that has to be broken. The idea today is that the Christian life is just a life of continuous smiling, especially in public. And you smile to prove you're a Christian. I used to speak a great deal in Youth for Christ in the early days. And all the song leaders then, they always began, now let's everybody smile. And if you're Christian, smile. Well, my friend, that doesn't prove anything at all. And I learned I didn't have to smile to prove I'm a Christian. The idea is you have to be as jolly as Santa Claus, cheerful as a floor walker, and as exuberant as a full of brush man, merry as a child going to a party and be able to sing down in the dumps, I'll never go. Well, by this standard, you become nothing in the world but a grinning goat and a laughing Cheshire cat and a chatting minor bird. And that's all you'd have. Can you imagine the Apostle Paul going about with a toothpaste smile? The fact of the matter is, Paul could sing praises to God at midnight with his back lacerated without smiling like a Cheshire cat. He is not a Pollyanna, glad girl type at all. This man knew what it was to suffer for Jesus' sake. And that vessel has to be broken. And the trouble today is that we don't have very many that are willing to do that. I remember Dr. George Gill used to tell us in class, he says, when someone is born, somebody has to travail. And he says the reason that more people are not being born again is because there are not enough that want to travel. We hear a great deal about witnessing. My friend, what kind of a price are you willing to pay today? It's not just being able to knock on a door or visit somebody. And I don't mean to minimize that. But the earthen vessel must be broken. We cannot have our way and his way in our lives. We're going to have to make up our mind whether we're going to follow him or not. Now, will you listen to him? Paul says here, we are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Now, what he's making here is a comparison. He says, we're troubled. That's a comparative degree, but we're not distressed. That's superlative. He was oppressed for room, as it were, but he still had room to preach the gospel. There was hand-to-hand combat in a corner but he still could turn to God. 
He says he's perplexed. He was unable to find a way out. But he's not in despair. He said, yet he did get out. The Spirit of God led him. And he goes on to say, persecuted but not forsaken. That is, he was pursued by enemies, but he wasn't overtaken by enemy. That is, persecuted, pursued by the enemy. Not forsaken, he wasn't overtaken by that. He says, you remember in another place, the thing that has happened to me has happened for the furtherance of the gospel, even when he was in prison. And then he could say there in prison, the Lord stood by me. And then he says here, he goes on, cast down but not destroyed. And that is a tremendous one. That is smitten down. The enemy got him down, but didn't destroy him, not kill him. Actually, Paul is playing here upon words, and it's lost in our translation. I wonder if I might give you my own construction of this. He says, I'm struck down, but not struck out. He could say at the end of his life, I've finished my course. Now, Paul here seems to be fighting a losing battle. And don't you sense that this man's very weak? And yet he's strong. (laughs) If you'd measure Paul, however, by the modern church statistics, by the material methods we use today, well, my friend, you wouldn't get very far. You put this little crippled, weak, sick Jew down by the mighty juggernaut of the Roman power, he's nothing. But my friend, he brought a message that withered that Roman Empire. And even Gibbon says that the Roman Empire could not stand up against the preaching of the gospel of Christ. May I say that he continues to topple throne. He seemed to be pretty weak then, didn't he? You see, God delivered Paul again and again. He used miraculous means, but he used natural means. And after all, what is the real test of a Christian? This is a day of compromise, a day of expediency, the day when you measure man by how popular he is or how many friends he's got. Dr. Bob Schuler down in downtown Los Angeles years ago used to say, I measure man by the enemies he's got, if you make the right kind of enemies. By the way, I've always prided myself on my enemies. I've got the right ones, friends, and I love it just that way. Now, what is the thing that he's saying here? Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our bodies. Oh, what a tremendous, wonderful thing this is that we have here. Paul could say, you remember, I die daily, over in 1 Corinthians 15, 31. Then he says in Romans 8, 36, we're killed all the day long. Then in 1 Corinthians 4, 9, he's appointed to death. Paul was on candid camera, but he's on there not to smile, but to suffer. Christian, suffer. You're on candid camera. (laughs) May I say to you, I think this is pretty important today. I think it's very important in this day in which we live. Oh, how wonderful it is to take our place with the Lord Jesus in these days. Now he goes on, For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. Well, may I say to you, this is a wonderful passage of Scripture that 
in our weakest moment may be the moment when we're the strongest. And he goes on to say in verse 12, So then death worketh in us, but life in you. Verse 13, We having the same spirit of faith, according as it is written, I believed, and therefore have I spoken. We also believe, and therefore speak. In other words, Paul, because of his faith, he said that he could speak, and he could speak and would speak boldly, knowing that he which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise up us also by Jesus and shall present us with you. Now, it's interesting to note here, and this is very important to see, that Paul didn't consider death the end. He's looking on beyond. That's merely just one of the experiences that he's going to have. And in the next chapter, he's going to speak of the comfort in the ministry of martyrdom for Christ. That is, of laying down your life for Jesus' sake. And so he just moves right on here. And what he's talking about here is that he takes the place of death. He's dead to the things of the world. Why? Because he's now joined to a living Christ. And because he's joined to him, he that raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise up us also by Jesus. Present us with you. Because of that, he says, we take this position down here. He says, for all things are for your sakes, that the abundant grace might through the thanksgiving of many redound to the glory of God, for which cause we faint not. But though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. This is a wonderful verse. As we grow older, uh, I should say, we don't grow older. We sort of begin to die out when we get old as far as the body is concerned. But we grow in grace and in the knowledge of Christ. I said to my wife no later than yesterday, I said, you know, I wish that I was 35 years old and know what I know now. What I meant was this old body I've got, it's dying. I can tell it all over. In fact, I'm ready to trade it in now. And this body is beginning to waste away. A marvelous picture that we have in the last chapter of Ecclesiastes, the 12th chapter. And what a picture it is of old age that you have there. And these old bodies, they're going to waste away. But the inward man ought to be growing. Old, I do not know about you. I feel closer to the Lord today than I did the day I entered the ministry. Oh, I was young then. And my, I tell you, I had a lot of enthusiasm then. But my friend... I didn't know so much then. My, what a stumbler I was at that time and how I failed <laughs> and what little I knew. I was really an ignoramus then, and I know a little bit more now. I feel like I've grown just a little down through the years. Now he goes on to say, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding an eternal weight of glory. And he makes here, again, a contrast. And he says that down here, all of the trouble that we've had, and my, it does seem long, doesn't it? And it does seem hard. But when we begin to measure it by the weight of glory that's coming someday, it's going to be light affliction compared to the weight of glory. 
Now, as someone has said, at eventide, it shall be light. That is Scripture. May I say to you, we spend our years as a tale that is told. Our light affliction is but for a moment, and our years pass as a watch in the night, while we look not at the things which are seen. These things that we see around us, friends, they're passing away. My, I think of the things, even the change that's taken place in Southern California and the number of wonderful Christians I knew when I came here in 1940. Not all of them, but many of them gone. The things which are seen, they are passing away. But the things which are not seen, and those are the eternal values, and they're beginning to appear now and loom large. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen, they're eternal. Oh, my friend, I'm now beginning to look for that city whose builder and maker is God. I love Pasadena. I love Southern California. But may I say to you, I'm now looking for another city.